This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Molly Taylor Pileski, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tara Numadal and Donna Billet about their new book, Furnace and Feud, a digital edition of Michael Myers' Atalanta Fugians with scholarly commentary. This is a digital publication on a musical alchemical emblem book from 1618, which was sponsored by um, the Mellon Digital Public, uh, Publications Initiative from Brown University and recently published by the University of Virginia Press. Dr. Billock is an academic and a goldsmith. She's the creative director of 12 Keys Consultancy and Design LLC and an independent scholar studying early modern science. Her research extends to the cross-cultural examination of jewelry, artisanal technologies, and meaning-making with materials. Dr. Numadal is Professor of History and Italian Studies at Brown University. She's also the author of Alchemy and Authority in the Holy Roman Empire, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2007, Anna Zieglerin and the Lion's Blood, Alchemy and End of Times in Reformation Germany from the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019, and an edited volume, John Abbott and William Swainson, Art, Science, and Commerce in 19th Century Natural History. Donna and Tara, welcome to New Books in History. Hi, glad to be here. here. I was wondering if you could start us off by just telling us about Furnace and Feud. Where did this idea come from? Ah, Okay, well, um, I think I'll dive into this question. this uh, this project is actually uh, a project of serendipity. It was never really, you know, it, it didn't follow like a very formalized start in terms of, oh, here's a project that we're going to do and let's all, you know, assemble all of the pieces and get a nice orderly start. That, that part happened about four years after its inception. Um, the genesis of this project actually is in my 2013 postdoc fellowship that I had at um, the Science History Institute, which is in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, I had gotten a postdoc to basically explore some ideas I had about Michael Myers' Atalanta Fugians, which is this really amazing, lavishly illustrated, enigmatic, beautiful alchemical, musical alchemical emblem book. It was published in 1618. And um, I'd been curious about it for quite some time. You know, as uh, uh, at that time I was a graduate student and uh, I had accidentally stumbled on a reference to Atalanta Fugians while I was 
supposed to be working on my dissertation, which was a totally different subject. Um, but anyway, I, I wound up getting a postdoc at uh, Science History Institute back in 2013. And um, my, my area of expertise is really um, allegory and emblematics. So I, I was taking a really deep dive into the illustrated content of Atalantifugians, because when you open up the book, the left-hand side of the page is music scored for three voices, and the right-hand side of the page is a presentation of an emblem, which means that the, the theme of the emblem is introduced by a motto, so a very short, pithy piece of text at the top of the page, and then there's this enigmatic illustration, and then there's an epigram. So an emblem really has these three components to it, music, image, text. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not a musicologist or a performer and this stuff is scored in, or this, the music is scored in, um, 17th century notation, which is not the same at all as like current day, um, notation. So fully half of the book was, um, was behind a massive disciplinary barrier for me. So one of the first things I did as a postdoc, because there were some recordings out there, like there's a MIDI and, you know, there'd been some uh, Plus Ultra, Ensemble Plus Ultra actually put out a really cool um, CD of all of the fugues. That's what Michael Meyer calls, um, the author of the book refers to the music as fugues, uh, which is actually a pun on fugere, the Latin verb to flee. Anyway, um, so Ensemble Plus Ultra has, uh, has a really great CD, but they also instrumentalized it. There's like a Chinese zither in it, and they, made, they really ironed out the music to make it more listenable because it's frankly weird. But so while that CD is really enjoyable to, to listen to, you know, when you're cooking pasta or something or just, you know, wanting to be meditative, but as a res- uh, scholarly research tool, it just didn't help me out at all. So through um, uh, through connections, actually, within the fellowship program at Science History Institute, I got introduced to Robin Beer, who is the director of a vocal ensemble called Les Canards Chantants. Um, and uh, she really opened up the music to me, um, you know, by bringing in her singers and explaining to me how the music actually complemented the images. And I started working with a classicist by the name of Anthony Parenti, really talented um, student from uh, Temple University, who showed me just the wonders of grammar in the uh, Latin epigrams. Like I had no idea that the grammar was so sensitive to encoding the meaning. So between working with Robin and working with Anthony, the Latin and the music became accessible to me. And I began to understand, oh my God, like this, this is a really complex, you know, work of uh, intellectual engineering going on here. And then I also got this, um, this is a long story, but I had this understanding that the book itself is encrypted. So I started working with a mathematician named Brian Hadley, and um, he really helped me to explore my argument that the book is actually designed around a hidden magic square. I can get into that later. 
So all this is to say that by the time I finished my postdoc uh, after a year, I was working with about 15 different people in, in distinct disciplines. I was working with a Hebrew scholar, with mathematicians, with music performers and musicologists. And um, it occurred to me, oh, my God, this is a lot of fun. What if, you know, we held a workshop and brought everyone together? Because, you know, I had been working with everyone independently. Wouldn't it be cool to see what everyone had to say about the book if we were all together in, in a room? So uh, Ron Bashir, who was then the library director at Science History Institute, funded exactly such a workshop in March 2015. And um, this is where I brought in the team that I'd been working with, as well as a few other scholars who I really admired and really wanted to get to know, like Tara. <laughs> and here's where I nerd out a bit, because I was a huge fan of Tara's scholarship. And I'd known Tara as a book on my library shelf. And I was like, and now's my chance to get to meet her. So, um, so Tara was part of this um, experimental workshop where basically I forbade the formal presentation of papers. And I was just like, we're here to play with the book. Les Canards Chantant was there in full force with six or seven singers um, there to be used as tools. Like if we wanted to hear a fugue sung backwards, they would do it. You know, if uh, we wanted to just being able to experiment with the music through live performance, it, they also got us to sing from the book. It was amazing. Like that was one of the most magical moments of my life as a scholar um, in the Osmer Library at Science History Institute with about, you know, 20, uh, 20 scholars all organized around three or four different copies of Adelante Fugians because um, other libraries in the area had had pulled together and, and brought together their copies so that we could also, you know, examine the different uh the different um copies anyway um so basically furnace and fugue uh has its genesis in this experimental workshop tara came up to me afterwards um because we had also discussed you know at the end of the workshop what could this um what could this book look like as a digital edition this was always something i i, I really thought was the way forward in terms of presenting the book. And um, Brown Library had just received the uh, Mellon Award for the Digital Publications Initiative. And Tara was like, well, do you want to collaborate on a proposal? And I was like, oh my God, this is scary. Like letting go of the project. So I took a deep, but I also wanted to do it. Um, because I, I also knew that this project is just way too big for any one person to try and handle. I mean, Michael Meyer was a polymath. None of us today are. So you really do have to work across the disciplines and draw in people with a particular kinds of expertise in order to unpack the riches of this book. So I took a deep breath and said, yes. And that was the beginning of like a really awesome, deeply enjoyable and transformative scholarly relationship. So we ended up, to our surprise, getting uh, the award, not getting the award, excuse me, I misspoke. Um, to my surprise, we got, uh, our, our, we got accepted as a pilot project, the first of two. And uh, that's, so I brought my team of, uh, or the community of scholars that I'd pulled together during my postdoc to Brown to work with Tara on, um, 
on creating Furnace and Fugue. So that's really where Furnace and Fugue formally began to become organized was at, at Brown once we had, um, once our proposal had gotten approved. So that's my, what, 11 minute answer to your one <laughs> question. Oh, that was <laughs> wonderful. I- I thought like you were taking us on this wonderful journey of uh, a research journey, but it was like a, a dream research journey where you are just interacting with people and traveling and unlocking secrets. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, yeah, it was mostly by those first couple of years, it was a lot of serendipity, I gotta say. And uh, and the formalization became, came after a really fun, fruitful period of just exploration and experimentation. Wow, thank maybe you, I can p- yes, maybe please, I can Carla. pick up the story a little bit from there because um, I think it was sort of at that moment when we decided to you know formalize this a little bit right and put in this application to the Brown Digital Publishing Initiative. So Brown, my institution had just gotten this um, Mellon grant to you know rethink the scholarly monograph in the digital age, right? And um, they and and you know we just at the end of Donna's workshop at the Science History Institute everybody thought this has to be digital, you know, this has to be the way to do it. And it just seemed like a perfect project for this. And, you know, I had not done digital scholarship before. So but this, this book just lent itself to digital publication in a way that other things I had worked on hadn't. So it just seemed to really fit. So we put in this proposal. And then we decided we needed to um, kind of take another pass at the style of workshop that Donna had done at the Science History Institute, but do it again, really with a with a more focus on what would this look like as a digital publication. And so in the winter of 2016, we brought, again, a really interdisciplinary and international group of scholars to Brown. Uh, Les Canards Chantal came again and, and performed some of the music. Um, in a really beautiful, it was one of those wintry days where we thought, you know, yeah. no, no one was going to make it because there was a <laughs> snowstorm and um, in Providence and the sort of the skies cleared just in time. And it was this beautiful sort of snowy afternoon. And we had this great um, performance lecture um, about the book. And then we spent the weekend with about, I think, 40 scholars, maybe, right, oh Donna? you know, just again, kind of playing around with possibilities of how could we do this digitally. And so it was really those two, those two very loose workshops that um, gave us all these different ideas for how to do it. And then once our proposal was accepted into the digital publishing initiative, we really plugged into this team of people at Brown who could support actually making this project Mm -hmm. real, right. And the goal of that was always to produce a peer-reviewed scholarly monograph, um, but an innovative one, something, you know, that would sort of work within the usual um, evaluation context of universities where where people do need to get tenure and, you know, promotion and so on, um, but that was also digital. And part of the, the goal there from Brown's perspective was to produce models of digital scholarship that, um, to, that other people can point to if they want to do this kind of work and also get tenure, right? So it was important to us to publish with the university press and go through the peer review process, um, even as it was also so important to us to do something really creative and, and different, right? And from the very beginning, digital. And so we really benefited from the resources at Brown to allow us to realize that um, and then eventually University of Virginia Press. So, I mean, it really is this sort of story of harnessing all of this creativity, um, but then really benefiting from 
you know, funding and institutions in the end yeah. to make it happen, right? That's a wonderful collaborative project. And I'd like to turn and sort of describe for the listeners what this is like, because it, I'm a digital historian. And so I've sort of seen the last 20 years of um, digital history develop. And this is such a beautiful um, addition that mm. just as you said, Tara and Donna, really takes advantage of the dynamic things that you can do online that you can't necessarily do in print. Um, I was wondering if you could describe a little bit about how you set up the book and then what the argument of the book is, both um, maybe you could describe a little bit more about the structure of the, the original source from 1618 and then how you were able to play with that in the digital medium. Okay, shall I take this one, Donna? Or you? Yeah, yeah. You, you jump in and then I'll follow up, yeah. Uh, okay, so as Donna has already kind of explained, this is an emblem book, and this is an emblem book written by a German physician and alchemist, Michael Meyer, um, which purports to be a kind of alchemical interpretation of Ovid's myth of Atalanta. And so you think from the title page that this is going to be about the myth of Atalanta, who was a very fast runner, um, whose father wanted her to get married, and she agreed to only marry someone who could beat her in a race. Um, when you open the book and you read further, the author Michael Meyer explains that actually he's going to interpret this alchemically, so that Atalanta represents Mercury, one of the two principles of metals in alchemical theory, and her suitor, Hippomenes, represents sulfur. And so their race is sort of about, and their eventual union is about the union of these two elements in the service of producing the philosopher's stone. Um, the way he beats her in the race is that he gets help from some goddesses who give him golden apples that he drops in front of her during the race. She stops to pick them up and slows down, right? And then he's able to run past her. And so as Donna described these emblems, once you get into the book, you have on the left-hand side, these fugues for three voices. And the voices are Atalanta, Hippomenes, her suitor, and the golden apple. And, and so these three voices seem to be the race. They're fugues, or we might think of them as canons, like row, row, row your boat, um, right? Where one voice begins and the next voice follows. And um, so you, you sort of, it's, it feels like maybe the sound of the music will be about Atalanta and Hippomenes and this race. If you start paying attention, though, you realize that the words they're singing actually come from the Latin epigrams that are on the other side of the page, which are all about alchemical theory and natural history and medicine and mathematics and, you know, this whole scholarly world. So it's a bit of a bait and switch in a way, because it turns out to be a kind of portal into this entire al alchemical corpus and the ways in which it intersects with other um, scholarly traditions in the early modern period. So this is why, you know, as Donna said, Meyer was a polymath. He can go from astronomy to natural history of salamanders to how to make the philosopher's stone in one emblem. And that's and and then the music can also represent that. And of course there are images as well. So one also needs to be, you know, an art historian and familiar with visual conventions and bookmaking. And um, and so it's a book that that you can very easily um, appreciate as a beautiful object, but, you know, find completely baffling. And we have a copy at Brown University. I've taken my students to see it for years, and they always looked at it and said, wow, that's amazing. I have no idea what's going on in this book, <laughs> right? It's gorgeous. I don't understand it. So, and, and I think Donna and I 
both in our experience with this book felt the same way that you know there was so much in this that we didn't understand and so we really began from this place of this has to be a multidisciplinary collaboration right and donna set up this original um, workshop in her own research to follow that that is not something you know we are impoverished as modern scholars in a way because of modern disciplinary specialization so i might understand the alchemical part but i don't understand the music at all right and people who had written about the music understand what's going on there, but maybe don't understand the images. And so we had to talk to each other. Um, And so the result is that we have um, a digital book that has several parts to it that are designed to make the book accessible to multiple different audiences um, and also to allow audiences to go a little bit deeper if they really want to get into the scholarship. So I'll just briefly kind of describe um, the parts of the book and then maybe say something about the argument and then maybe Donna wants to jump in and expand on some things. We, the, it's both a edition of Atalanta Fugians, Meyer's 1618 text, uh, which you can, we, we incorporated a, tr- a contemporary 17th century translation into English. So although the original book is in Latin and German and music and image, you can read it in English, in 17th century English. You can switch back and forth between languages. So you can sort of, you can see it in the original if you want to, or you can read it in English. And you can navigate through the book um, in ways that maybe we can talk a little bit about later. Um, But in addition to the edition of the book itself, we've included three very short introductory essays that are designed to orient users who don't know anything about the early modern period or who maybe know about part of it, but not other parts. So those three introductory essays are very short. Um, They are on the history of alchemy by Jennifer Rampling. They are on Michael Meyer and Who He Is by Harold Tilton. And they're about the print history of the book from um, Steve Tabor at the Huntington Library. So those are designed to kind of outline Meyer's world a little bit and allow readers to find their footing. And then we've included a set of essays by scholars, musicologists, art historians, historians of alchemy, and so on, that, you know, are much more like conventional scholarly articles, except that they're digital. So, you know, you can go in. So Donna's idea about the magic square is the subject of her article. And um, so that's for people who really want to get into the scholarship and understand our our scholarly intervention into the history of alchemy, the history around this book in particular, but also really scholarly um, culture more generally in the early modern period. And I would just very briefly describe that intervention uh, as saying that, first of all, you know, what's different about our study of Atalanta Fugians from previous studies is this multidisciplinary collaboration at the heart of it. Uh, Second of all, we're writing about Atalanta Fugians in light of this real transformation in the history of alchemy in the last few decades that um, scholars now understand alchemy no longer, you know, as sort of only philosophy, um, you know, or something that is linked tightly to hermeticism and Rosicrucianism and philosophy. It is all of those things, but scholars in the last few decades have really explored alchemy's connections also to the material world and understood it as a material practice and through its links to early modern science and medicine. 
So we're sort of informed by this new scholarly consensus in the history of alchemy, and we're trying to reposition Adelante Fugians as not only a literary text, a clever kind of pun on Ovid's tale of Adelanta, um, you know, even better adorned with music, but also as an invocation of and, and really meditation on actual laboratory technologies for how to make the philosopher's stone. And so that's the largest context for this is that we see this book and particularly the scholarly essays um, as a commentary on shifting anxieties in the early modern period around disciplines that really bridged sense and intellect and theory and practice and scholarship and craft disciplines, early modern disciplines like music, right? Like alchemy, um, like medicine and like art, all of which had theoretical traditions, but also material practices and are kind of the biggest argument, I think, of Furnace and Fugue is that we need to understand Meyer's uh, book, Adelante Fugians, as an intervention into those debates that were happening in the early 17th century. So that's sort of an overview of the book, um, both what it, what it looks like and the scholarly intentions behind it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is a really wonderful scholarly edition, as you, as you mentioned, Tara, but it's also, I think, because of its... Um, beautiful design and interactivity, something that will attract a popular audience. And I'm wondering, um, how do you imagine that both the lay reader and the specialized reader will approach this book and what kinds of meanings will they take out of it? Since I imagine it will be a highly individualized experience for each reader. Yes, thank you for that. And that was, you know, I should say that the um, accessibility was really part of this from the very beginning. So, so for example, I mentioned the translation so that you don't have to be an expert in Latin to read Meyer's book. We also recorded, uh, we created new recordings of all of the fugues for three voices, so that even if you can't read the music, you can still hear the music. Uh, it's, they're also recorded as separate tracks so that you could only focus in on one voice if you wanted to, or perhaps two voices. Um, again, we've we've included these brief introductory essays to orient people. So I think when we created this, we wanted to speak to our colleagues in the field, you know, historians of, of this world. But we definitely wanted to bring in new kind of audiences as well. And I will say that one of the things about the history of alchemy is that it hasn't ended. There are still... You know, there are lively communities of alchemical practitioners in the world, and they are very often very interested in this book because it's such a beautiful and enigmatic and engaging books and uh, book. And we really wanted to make our work accessible to them as well. Um, early music performers often know of Adelante Fugians because of the music that's included in Meyer's book, and we wanted to bring them into the conversation. We've included a performance edition as well, and so we really welcome, you know, additional performances. Um, of the music in Meyer's book. And of course, you know, because I teach it at a university, I imagine my students and I've already had some of my students begin to work with the addition to write papers. And so on that point, I just wanted to mention one other feature of Furnace and Fugue 
that for us was one of the things you could do digitally that you can't really do as easily with a paper book. And that is the collections feature. So any particular user, of course, you can read the different essays, you can look at the original edition, but built into it and accessible from different points in Furnace and Fugue is the collections feature. So if you, for example, were a student and you decided you wanted to write a picture, a picture, a paper about um, representations of women in in Adelante Fugians, you can go into the image search and search for images of women, or you could do a text search and find you know, textual references to women. And you could create a collection of all of the emblems that have images of women or birds or, you know, cubes <laughs> or dragons or, or mythological creatures or early modern figures um, and or fire or laboratory tools, right? And so you can build your own collection of emblems and essentially pull them out of their original order in Adelante Fugians, which is one through 50 emblems, right? But you could look at the connections between emblem 11 and emblem 23, if you wanted to, or create a collection of, you know, four or five emblems and look at them together. And so we are really hoping that um, scholars, students, musicians, alchemists, just general, you know, people who like early modern books, uh, will find that to be a way to engage with Meyer's book in a way that is, as you say, really individualized, really creative, and allow them to, you know, read the scholarly arguments, but then maybe try them out for themselves, right? And uh, create their own arguments from, from what we've given them there. Yeah, like in terms of reimagining the book in the 21st century, uh, we kind of took the motto from Emblem 11, I think it is, literally, which translates roughly, tear the book apart. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it sounds like when you're describing that. It sounds like tearing the book apart. But another thing that I liked about this is that you don't lose the materiality of the original source either because um, you have this great video of somebody turning the pages of the book. This is what it all looks like together. But then you can absolutely make it your own, which is just just so interesting. Uh, uh, spoiler alert and full disclosure, the that's Tara turning the pages. Oh, I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, lovely manicure hands. <laughs> I think we had to retake that one because Tara was wearing like a really ungainly watch or something in the first one and was just like, no, we're not using that. <laughs> this is so interesting, Donna, because my next question was, what were some of the interesting things that you learned in the process of co-writing or co-editing this book? And I didn't imagine that that would be the answer, but I'll let you answer Seriously, well. Yeah, actually, um, before before we move to that question, there just was a couple of things I wanted to add to Tara's like amazing, elegant, thorough description of you know what the book does digitally. Um, in terms of uh, why we, we why we reimagine the book as as something that the reader himself or herself or their self could reshuffle. Um, and this relates really to my idea that uh, there is, that Meyer designed the book around a hidden math puzzle that's known as a magic square. And I'm not going to, you know, get into a detailed um, exposition of my own analysis of that. But basically, when you collect uh, clues that Meyer has hidden in the music, image, and text. Um, you discover keys to unlock the book as this hidden math puzzle, this magic square. And that 
completely reshuffles the sequence, which in the book, when you turn the pages, comes across as one to 50. But scholars have noted that it's not a sequential storyline. The storyline is all broken up. So when you actually explore the book as a magic square in this like reshuffled configuration of whole new kinds of pairings and whole, it prompts whole new sorts of investigations into the secrets of nature. So in working really closely with the uh, digital scholars and web designers at Brown University, um, one of the reasons, one of the, that really informed the design of, of the digital edition itself, the fact that the user can go in and completely reshuffle the book according to, you know, following your own curiosity or the own prompts or clues that you might discern in Myers, music, image, or text. And um, interestingly, a few um, people in my own network who aren't scholars have reached out to me after playing with the book saying to, to just basically give their feedback about experiencing the book. And that element, the collections element, paired up with being able to explore the music either as the downloadable performance edition in the modernized score, uh, or to explore the music by listening to the recordings. And we also uh, visualized the music as a piano roll. There is a piano roll button that you can click um, in order to follow the musical structure um, as it plays out. Um, some of the feedback I've gotten was frankly quite astounding of people trying to sing the book. <laughs> <laughs> so people exploring the images and also taking deeper dives into the essays and then going to the music, which hitherto would have been inaccessible, to try and play out their ideas through using their own voice, which I, I think is absolutely amazing. It's an amazing um, follow through of Meyer's injunction to the reader, which is on the title page, which is to engage the uh, faculties, the senses of sight, sound, and intellect in investigating the secrets of nature. So in many ways, we echo what, what Meyer's, um, Meyer's uh, injunction to the reader uh, seems to be through, um, through the text and the title page. So anyway, that was, that was my addendum to, uh, to, to Tara's explanation of how the book can work and how we would love people just to play with it and try and break it. I would say, you know, push the boundaries, see, see what, see what you can get it to do that maybe we didn't even envision. That would be cool to know. And we see that really, this is Tara. We see that as following Meyer's vision. We, we, you know, that one of the arguments of the, of our essays, the collection of essays is that that is something that Meyer intended. He didn't intend people to read book cover, the book cover to cover. It makes no sense that way anyway. And so we see ourselves as kind of facilitating Meyer's vision and really following centuries now of readers and users who have, you know, rewritten it, translated it, taken it apart, taken out the music and republished it and so on and so on over the years. So we see this as, you know, a part of a very long tradition of, um, of people reading and using and, and really that idea of playfulness is core to our project. Yeah, and digital is uniquely suited as a tool and a medium to do this. I think that's a wonderful point that we've gotten to where 400 years after the book was originally published, you can start, you can 
return to some of the original intentions of the author simply because it's not such a staid medium that you have to do it in a, in a linear fashion or in any kind of fashion. And so I think this is just such an exciting parallel that the digital revolution can match up in some ways with the, the print and, and um, knowledge revolution that um, you it's, study. It's almost, it, it's almost 402 years to the date in oh. terms of Meyer's publication. I think he published it in August of 1618, if I'm not, if I'm correct, Tara, do you recall? I don't recall. <laughs> it's, hang on, I'm going to pull out my, my facsimile, but it's it's literally almost a, four, four centuries and two years to the date. Hang on, hold, hold that thought. I'm grabbing my copy. Another piece of it, actually, that I'll mention is that when it was the 400th anniversary that year, we did an Instagram project as part of this as well, which still lives at Furnace and Fugue uh, on Instagram, where each week we we published on Instagram one of the emblems and we invited all different kinds of people to comment on the emblem briefly, just in a few sentences. We had neuroscientists, we had a child or two, I think we had, you know, artists and musicians and all sorts of people. So that was also a really fun way to play around with digital uh, and also to appeal to a much broader audience. Um, and we found, you know, there were Jungian analysts who were following us and architects and graphic designers and, and of course, alchemists and historians and musicians as well. So that was another fun part of this. Oh, well, why would we stick to one discipline now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering um, if there's advice that you would offer to people who are starting digital editions, because this is kind of a new genre. I can think of a couple um, that do this very well, that they take advantage of the digital platform rather than just try and fit mm -hmm. a printed monograph online. Um, could you offer some advice to people thinking about that in the future? I think, I mean, you've already just mentioned the key thing, which is to, I think sometimes just because we can, we want to do it, right? And so to stop and think about what is it that digital tools allow me to do with this edition that I can't do with paper. There needs to be a reason to do it, I think. And for us, it was about the sound. It was about hearing. Um, and it was about this ability to reshuffle the emblems, right? So that's one piece of it is to really think carefully about what it is that you're trying to do digitally that you can't do otherwise. The other thing I'll say is it is, it is expensive. <laughs> it is, you know, it requires, uh, we were extremely fortunate with the support from Brown and the, the digital publishing initiative that Donna and I did not have to become experts in TEI, you know, or uh, graphic design, you know, that we we were really the beneficiaries of this this Mellon funded initiative that allowed us to work with all these experts. And I will say also, if you're able to do that, to kind of open yourself up to the expertise of these graphic designers and programmers and all these other people, because um, you know, Donna and I alone never, ever would have come up with Furnace and Fugue. <laughs> it, you know, it was such, and, you know, even the scholars that we worked with and Donna and I never would have come up with Furnace and Fugue. It was so, it's so hinged on the collaborations with the, all of these technologists and book people and TEI people and so on. Um, and so, but, you know, you have to be open to how a programmer might see your project or how a graphic designer might see your project. Uh, so for me, That's that right. was really, one yeah, way, one of yeah. the, one of the revelations and pleasures of this and joys of seeing it come together. Yeah. Like uh, one thing I would say, be prepared to 
have your own vision or expectations recalibrated by what actually makes sense to do digitally. So, you know, ways in which, you know, I, I would visualize or present my argument, for example, in a PowerPoint um, does not necessarily is not what translated into the digital edition. Like there's just ways that talking with people who have the expertise in coding in ways that they can um, weigh in on and make your argument legible digitally is uh, is a really important conversation to have, you know, and just just being prepared to let go of, you know, your own ideas in order to let the ideas and expertise of other people who work in this uh, in this profession to to influence what what is ultimately produced. And that's so, as much a, a commentary on the process of collaboration as yeah. it is, a, you know, commentary on digital, right? That we yeah. really had to kind of surrender to this group project, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, it, I think it worked well for us. It's not always easy. We were on different timelines. And I think it's important time to point zones. out time zones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's important to point out, too, that Donna and I are approaching this project from really different kinds of positions in the profession, right? I have a full professor at Brown. I, I was tenured when I started the project. And Donna's an independent scholar. And so we have different kinds of um, pressures and resources and reasons for doing this project. And for us, that was always really a positive um, and I think has produced a better project to collaborate across those kinds of institutional barriers. But it also means that, you know, people have different kinds of priorities and you have to navigate all of that. Um, yeah. And yeah, so that was as much about collaboration as the digital. Yeah. Sorry, I want to say on um, on that point, or one of the points that Tara just uh, raised, Atalanta Fukians, the Furnace and Fugue project is actually what made me decide to become an independent scholar. <laughs> well, explain that now. Yeah, well, it's, um, and it's, it's a choice that I embraced happily and joyfully, but also it took me years to realize this was the direction I was headed in. I mean, when I when I graduated, my my dissertation is on a 17th century Puritan alchemist who operated in England and America named John Allen. And when I graduated, well, after I defended, I put out two types of applications, one which was to do what I was supposed to do, which is transform the dissertation into a monograph about John Allen and, and make a scholarly contribution that way and also make myself marketable on the tenure track. And so I put out that set of fellowship applications. And I also, by that time, had questions about Atalanta Fugians, was super intrigued and wanted to have support to take a deeper dive into, into that research project. That was like my shadow dissertation project that emerged, you know, a couple of years into the dissertation writing. So that turned out to be the fellowship that got funded. Like, so it wasn't like I was trying to be a maverick or buck the system. It was like, you know, I had <laughs> to follow the funding. So, um, you know, once the project got started, I just felt I had to commit to seeing it through come what may. And partially through, because I'm Canadian, I decided to apply for a green card and the pressures that attended that made me really at one point take stock and inventory about what I was doing professionally. What is my professional identity? Am I going on the tenure track or not? 
And frankly, Atalanta Fugians is, uh, or Furnace and Fugue for me, uh, represents a project that is not my dissertation, that is a digital edition, so not even a monograph, in a, in a publication medium that there's still no infrastructure in place really to evaluate on certain, in certain areas of the tenure track. Uh, so it's a digital edition of a research project that isn't my dissertation, that uh, on top of it is a multidisciplinary collaboration, you know. So I realized that I was actually aggressively pursuing fellowships to, you know, support myself in, in working on Furnace and Fugue and also developing other projects. And I was not aggressively pursuing tenure track positions. So that actually made me pull myself up short and realize, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. So actually, this is what I want to do, pursuing these types of projects that maybe don't easily fit yet, easily fit into tenure track requirements. And that's when I decided, no, I'm, I am just going to call a spade a spade. I'm, I'm stepping out as an independent scholar. And I formally did that in 2018. So Furnace and Fugue was like transformative, a transformative experience for me professionally. We talk about alchemical transmutation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's, I I think that that's an important part of the story to tell is that Furnace and Fugue really represents what an independent scholar, myself, and a tenured professor, Tara, can produce in collaboration, um, in combining our ideas, our access to communities, to resources, um, with the support of institutions um, like Brown University Library, in this case, and the Mellon Grant, the Digital Publications Initiative. I mean, this is working across the academy. Like, when we work together, this is what we can achieve. It's pretty, pretty beautiful, actually. And I think it's actually... I think I just wanted to, sorry, I just wanted to add that I think um, such an important part of this for us was creating different kinds of models. I think it's very difficult for all of us to think outside of the box, um, whether it's, you know, the usual kind of career paths. I know the AHA has been doing a lot of work around that and thinking more broadly about what careers as historians look like, or, you know, it's career paths or what a book looks like. And I think that there's a lot of desire to think outside of those boxes, but it's not always clear how to do it. And so for us, I think what Furnace and Fugue offers is one model. It's not the only model. It's not doable for everyone, but it offers one model. I mean, along the way, when I would tell some of my colleagues or, you know, I'm sure Donna had the same experience, what we were doing, nobody could envision what I was talking about. And they would say, oh, how's your website going? Or, you know, I, I published a digital thing once and they were talking about a, like a Kindle version of their book. And as much as I tried to articulate that we were trying to do something different, it was really hard for people to get their heads around it until they saw it. And so many of my colleagues then said, oh, now I see what you were doing this whole time. And I think that's true for careers as well, is that we can say to, say, graduate students, you know, keep your minds open for different kinds of career paths. But it helps to see models of people who have navigated that successfully. Um, And so, you know, that's one of my hopes for this project is that it can offer a model, and I hope that there are many more of them as well to people who want to think in different ways about what a career as a historian and what scholarship can look like. 
Yeah, it's using your independence as an independent scholar. I mean, for for several years, my colleagues were asking me, what are you doing, Donna? You should be working on your monograph, you know, your John Allen monograph. And I'm like, in for a penny, in for a pound. I mean, for me, what Furnace and Fugue ended up representing was uh, my commitment to doing what in the end, I believed was the right thing to do for me, as opposed to the expected thing to do for me. And I would hope that Furnace and Fugue um, can help to maybe decenter all of the emphasis that is placed on the monograph, because by now it should be abundantly clear that even if I wanted to write a monograph about Atalantifugians, it's kind of hard to do that in the conventional ways available to us. It, it kind of has to be a collaborative digital edition in order to be able to dissolve the disciplinary boundaries that up to this point have really siloed scholarship around Atalantifugians. And there's excellent, excellent scholarship on Atalantifugians, but our work is the first to really make it accessible across the disciplines uh, from so for me as a historian of early modern science to be able to engage with the music as a resource as a tool of analysis and interpretation for a musicologist to now be able to engage deeply with the images or the um, latin text if latin is not available as a as a as a part of your methodological toolkit so uh, for me, yeah, uh, investing in Atalantifugians for me is an investment in my cohort and other cohorts going forward and having academe find ways to understand how to make a project like this count towards either tenure track hires or evaluation or even promotion. I think that's wonderful. It uh, resonates with me as a professor of digital history what I tell my graduate students, digital history is experimental and collaborative. And you never want to just be using a tool because it exists. You are primarily um, dealing with the, the scholarship of it. So you do, the digital is kind of a means to an end. It's not um, the ends in itself. And then I just last week told my senior students, uh, senior undergraduate history students who many of them want to go to graduate school and they say, become a history professor. And I say, when you're in graduate school, make sure that you're following your curiosity. You're not trying to fit the mold because that's where success in any form is going to come from. It's what you bring to it, not what you think you're supposed to be doing. And so we have benefited, I would say, um, not just this scholarly early modern European world, um, but um, the general public with this edition, which I should also mention, is free. And Tara, you said this is a very expensive volume to produce, which I fully recognize. And it is such a gift to us all that we can freely use it at any time. So thank you very much for making this accessible for our students and, and for any of us um, who don't have the, the means to always pay you know, $180 for a scholarly monograph that right. only right. a handful of people can access. No, I mean, obviously, we did, we could not foresee what 2020 was going to look like when we published this book. But we I think we feel that it's just all the more important right now when we're, we're all trying to teach online and digitally and, you know, to make make sources like this available to 
to students and faculty to work with. And we were really, really pleased that uh, University of Virginia Press was open to that. And, and again, that we had the support of Brown in doing that. And it's, it's, you know, really a wonderful aspect of it for us. Okay, well, we've taken up a lot of your time with this absolutely engaging conversation. Thank you so much. But I'd like to know now, what are you working on? <laughs> I think we were joking before we started this podcast about how could we top this? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll just retire. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll actually jump in because I do have my next academic project ramping up that I'm super, super, super excited about. Um, I learned so much from Furnace and Fugue about collaboration, about how to use my independence as an independent scholar to really, you know, pull together, design, and uh, execute, you know, the type of research projects that really, you know, float my boat. So Bruce Marin, who's the general editor of Ambix, which is our our journal for um, uh, the history of, of chemistry and alchemy, he invited me to be a guest editor for a special issue. It's going to be published in February 2023. And I've decided that the subject is on gold and mercury, which I have um, an interest in not only as a historian of early modern science, because um, gold making is, is part of the... Um, the uh, alchemical goals in this period in, in terms of creating um, uh, chemical medicines. Uh, so I don't just have an intellectual interest in gold and mercury, but I also have uh, interest in it as a goldsmith. I want to use mercury-free golds uh, in the pieces that I, I produce. But in trying to get this material, it's actually really, really hard in probing why um, very quickly reveals a Gordian knot of controversy. So I designed a research project that pulls on my network of scholars that includes archaeometallurgists, environmental historians, philologists, people working, scholars working in material culture to examine the inter these two interrelated metals, gold and mercury, um, from a transcultural, transhistorical perspective to understand how these two metals have worked their way through environment, culture, and the body and the impact that, that it actually, you know, has upon us. Um, so for me, what's really important also is to, to, really foreground the academic diversity that goes into this project because this mentorship is an important aspect of this collaboration is an important aspect of the golden mercury project and uh, it'll feature scholarship from doctoral students doctoral students working with faculty as well as early mid and senior career scholars um, so it's really again a collaborative project that is works both um, inside and outside of the institution in terms of me, who's unaffiliated, leading it, in uh, support with Bruce Moran, who's the general editor of, uh, of Ambix, as I mentioned. So in ways, it's like taking what I learned from Furnace and Fugue and, um, and seeing, yeah, 
taking this model of collaboration and, and seeing, you know, what this next iteration will produce in terms of models for the, um, for the academy. Well, Donna, that sounds like a great project. Um, Tara, would you like to add what you're working on currently? Sure. So I am picking up two threads from from one from Furnace and Fugue and one from my book on its Eagleton and the Lion's Blood. So on the on its Eagleton project, I'm picking up the thread of what usually gets called love magic, and I'm interested in um, exploring the relationship between kind of history of emotions and material culture through thinking about gender and magic. I think of it more broadly as affective magic in the early modern period. So um, magic that can either win affections or alienate affections. So I'm beginning to explore that. And the other project that I'm thinking about has to do with, um, again, this kind of collaborative environment from Furnace and Fugue. A couple of years ago, I team taught a class with a professor at the Rhode Island School of Design, Rachel Berwick, who is a glass artist and professor in the glass department. And we team taught a class on kind of early modern um, making meaning and material culture. And it really got me thinking about the relationships between alchemy and glass in the early modern period as um, to what we might think of today's fields that practitioners often moved back and forth between. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious to see whether I can continue to collaborate with the glassmakers at RISD and incorporate some of that maybe into a scholarly project, uh, jumping off from the history of alchemy into the history of glass. But we'll see. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that um, I'm taking a little bit of time right now to think carefully about what I want to do next rather than jumping right into the next thing. So we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. Well, Tara Numadal and Donna Billock, those both sound like wonderful projects, and uh, I look forward to hearing more about them and seeing them. I want to thank you both so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care to you both. Thank you so much, Molly. It was great to chat with you. Thanks, Molly. This was a real pleasure. Bye-bye. 